welcome to the Guide to Getting Your First Job Abroad with me, Sally Fletcher. This is a podcast designed to help those who want to combine building a meaningful career with seeing the world. We discuss things like routes to careers abroad, jobs that pay you to travel, how to nail a Skype interview, digital nomads, visas and well-being as an expat. Each week we cover a different factor that you'll need to consider when thinking about working in another country for the first time. We'll also speak directly to someone who's made the move and uncover their tips, tricks, and what they wish they'd done differently. So if you missed the first three episodes, so far we've covered the simple but very important task of deciding where to go. Easy routes to global careers, so including how to negotiate the conversation of moving abroad with your employer, work abroad schemes that are actually worth it, and how to nail a Skype interview. This week, we're moving on to another method that you can take to live and work abroad, and that's becoming a digital nomad. So if you're not familiar with the term, digital nomads are people that leverage technology in order to live and work abroad. And whether that's in one place or hopping around from place to place, the internet has provided us with so many opportunities to live and work abroad and combine building a meaningful career with traveling the world. So today we're going to cover the following. We're going to look at how to get started as a digital nomad. We're going to look at the top 10 digital nomad jobs, resources to support digital nomads, and downsides that you'll need to consider. So getting started. So obviously there's lots of reasons why remote working is beneficial, and I'm not going to talk about for too long about why it's great, because I think that's kind of obvious. But essentially, you can live and work all over the world, save on your commute, so both time and money. You can work for a big brand company not present in your city. So that's actually what I do. I work for a conference production company. They're headquartered in New York, um, and I've worked for them in Berlin, in Singapore, and now remotely in Munich. Flexible working hours and a better work-life balance. So how do you get started? What kind of jobs do digital nomads do? So we've actually created a top 10 list of jobs for digital nomads that I'm going to go through, um, see if that gives you some inspiration. So first up is copywriting. So in short, writing text for advertising or marketing. So copywriting, it can involve researching, proofreading, editing, interviewing and, and writing, obviously. Um, it's not the best paid job in the world, um, at least at the start, but you can easily make about $15 to help finance your travels and provide you with some writing experience. You can check out sites like freelancer.com um, to give you an idea of what's out there. Number two is virtual assistant. So just think what a regular assistant would do, mine is getting coffee. Um, usually it's things like answering emails, Skype calls, data entry, updating websites and so on. Number three is translation. So that's pretty self-explanatory, but it's definitely a role that you can live and work abroad while earning a decent wage. Number four is social media marketing. So if you're super into Instagram or you're uh, very, very active on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok, um, make it work for you. So keeping Facebook and Twitter accounts updated, answering customer queries, posting content is definitely something that companies like to outsource. You can look at Jobspresso and Remotive. They're two sites that will give you an idea of opportunities in this field. Number five is web design. So it's not as hard as you think to learn the basics of web design because a lot of software these days has templates um, to help you make it look really good. 
So take the time to get the basics down um, and it's really time well spent. And it's definitely an in-demand skill and a very important job that will look really good on your CV. Number six is online teaching. So several people I met while living in Berlin were making a really, really good career via online teaching. So it was mainly languages, uh, mainly English teaching. And online teachers usually provide a one-to-one Skype sessions with pupils around the world. So check out platforms such as Tutorsbee or check Tutors to see what's available. Okay, number seven is programming. So it's Not a job for everyone, but programming, I had to put it in the list as one of the highest paid digital nomad jobs. So it takes time and it takes work experience to get up to speed, but it's definitely an in-demand skill um, for freelancers and it's on the rise. And once you're established, the world's really your oyster with this job. Number eight is blogging. So um, making money just from a blog is difficult because you have to have lots of followers to make an impact. But starting a blog to get exposure for your services, so whether it's online teaching, SEO, web design, um, that can be really useful. Often companies are looking for people to blog on their behalf, so content jobs, content creation jobs. So if you have an area of expertise specifically, you could look into freelance blogging assignments such as these. Number nine is affiliate marketing. So If you're not familiar with the term, affiliate marketing is performance-based marketing, um, where you make money, so commission, based on recommending products online. So the basic idea is to drive traffic to particular websites or products. Check out a company called Clickshaw to get a better idea. So for this one, you do need a following, whether it's an Instagram following, you've got a following on a blog or website subscribers and I would say you only should recommend products you're really familiar with or you can risk losing your followers trust and number 10 is graphic design so like programming it it takes some time to get the basics together and you would need to have an in-depth knowledge of things like photoshop but if this is an area of skill for you then it's definitely something that employers don't mind you doing remotely So we're going to take a quick break right now, but after the break, I'm going to talk to you about how you become a digital nomad if you already have a job that you want to keep. So welcome back to the guide to getting your first job abroad. So before the break, I talked about the top 10 roles for digital nomads. Um, You can go and have a look at if you're looking to build your career or get a new job. But if you already have a job that you're loath to relinquish, you really like it, but you want a change of scene, it is possible to keep your job whilst becoming a digital nomad. So first up, to to match the rise in digital nomads, there's been a rise in resources to support them, Um, namely digital nomad retreats or co-living spaces. So what are these? So digital nomad retreats are basically co-working retreats where you're provided with co-working spaces, accommodation, Wi-Fi and other group activities in somewhere exotic. Sounds really nice, yeah? (laughs) I think so. Um, The idea is to help you continue doing your job while seeing the world. So a few, there's loads of different companies that provide these. Um, I'm going to go through through a few right now. Um, Just a disclaimer, I've not done any of these personally, um, but these ones I researched heavily and they have the best reviews online. So yeah, um, just to let you know that. 
So the first one that I thought looked really interesting is called Unsettled. So Unsettled provides 30-day co-working retreats designed to break your routine and take your work, life and adventures beyond borders. So they had retreats in places like Bali, Morocco, Nicaragua. Um, They provide Wi-Fi in all of their co-working spaces, curated experiences, which sounds super fancy, um, and I think means dinner parties, (laughs) weekend adventures and uh, workshops. They've got comfortable housing and the chance to meet around 30 other like-minded nomads. And that's actually something that a lot of the reviews talked about quite heavily was the chance to collaborate with other people whilst on these digital nomad retreats. You might be sitting next to someone that is in a completely different field um, with different experience and be able to brainstorm and springboard ideas off each other. Um, Another concept, another company that does this is called Remote Year. So Remote Year has a similar concept to Unsettled but it obviously lasts a year. So participants live and work in a different city around the world each month. You do need a job to participate in both of these schemes. It doesn't need to be a nine to five corporate job, but they do expect you're going to work. um, And that's the environment they're trying to create at the working spaces. Um, Okay. Co-living. So co-living is another kind of concept very closely linked to digital working retreats. So co-working, co-living, sorry, um, is if you want to stay somewhere a little bit longer. So it's kind of like the next stage up from co-working. So they also provide accommodation. And a few of the companies that do this, Wi-Fi Tribe is one of them, Nomad Life, um, and that's in Nicaragua as well. Seems like that's a popular place for uh, co-working and living. And Rome. So Rome is in R-O-A-M, Rome the world, not Rome as in Italy. Um, And it has an international network of co-living spaces, Rome does. Um, They've got places in Bali, Tokyo, San Francisco and Miami currently. So the good thing about these schemes, um, I think, is that they provide a relative safety net when taking the plunge into digital nomadism. So you get a ready-made community, accommodation, um, you get decent connected working space, which is definitely not something they should take for granted. We talk a little bit later about the transition to working remotely um, and having good Wi-Fi, being able to be connected, be accountable, be transparent with your employer is absolutely vital to making this a success. Um, So connected working space is is really important. And these schemes also provide a pre-prepared itinerary, so take a little bit of the stress out of the planning. Um, But they're not free. Um, As you would expect, both schemes require investment. If you're lucky, I've read some stories about people who employ um, companies who've used these as part of the talent management program um, and offered them to employees, but it's not the norm. If you prefer to go it alone, um, then you're in luck. More and more companies are allowing their employees to work remotely. So I think working remotely kind of overlaps with digital nomadism and the terms are very interchangeable in a lot of the articles you'll read. But I tend to think of digital nomads as moving from place to place um, and remote workers as living more or less in one place and working from home or a co-working space. We talked earlier about the benefits, you know, lack of commute, um, more flexible working hours. But how do you actually go about working remotely? So we're going to talk a little bit about 
the big question, how do you convince your boss to let you work remotely? So how do you convince your boss to let you work remotely? Well, it's all about the preparation. You've got to think about your employer's potential concerns and try your best to mitigate them up front. So one of the key concerns that always comes with remote working is productivity. If you're wanting to travel whilst working remotely, how you can resist the urge to nap on the beach or explore a brand new city. So think about how you're going to define your working hours, where will you be working and how will you maintain regular contact with clients or colleagues. So essentially, it's about giving your employer visibility and accountability. I'll be on time. I'll be online at this particular time and really, really sticking to it. I'm a remote worker and I fill out an Excel sheet once a week, which sounds pretty old school, um, but it works for us. My, it's not something my boss asked me to do, but it's something I suggested because I wanted to show visibility on how I spend my time and, and make him feel more comfortable. Communication is so important here and I can't emphasize that enough. Suggest a weekly video conference or call with your boss to ensure that communication is smooth especially in the transition period. Um, I think video conference is a lot better if possible um, because I think it's just human nature. We feel more comfortable when we can see someone face-to-face and a little bit more connected. Um, Throughout the day, you can also use tools such as Slack to keep in touch with both your boss and, and your team. Another point to note is that according to Diego Gurka, the founder of Wi-Fi Tribe that we mentioned earlier, Another thing employers often worry about is how will the rest of the team feel if I let Sally work remotely? They worry, I think, about setting a precedent. So whereby if they let you work remotely, the whole team will want to work remotely. And then what will the impact be on the business? So Diego's advice here is to encourage your boss to treat it like a trial run. Um, And the reason he says this is because if you can prove that working remotely is actually good for the business, then he or she, um, your boss, shouldn't have concerns about letting other employers work remotely. So you need to commit to being back in the office if it doesn't work. But if you structure it this way, then both you and your teammates are really invested in making this happen. Um, So essentially, you're fighting for the freedom for your whole team to work more flexibly and remotely. Um, So it really can work well this way. Another thing to note is your performance. So if you're not high performer already, it doesn't really make sense to have the conversation until you can get your performance up. If your last few performance reviews haven't gone well, um, then yeah, work on improving your performance. If your boss doesn't trust you to work well in the office, they're definitely not going to trust you to work when you're gallivanting around the globe. The long and the short of it is that now you're no longer physically present in the office, you're going to be judged by results and not effort. So of course, that's the case always in business, but even more so for remote workers, because they can't, your boss can't see what you're doing. They can't see how much effort you've been put in. If you've been at the computer all day, if you've been calling people on the phone, so you need to be able to deliver. On one hand, this works really well because you can be flexible on where, when, and, and how much actually you work. But conversely, you need to be prepared to deliver consistently. Next up, think about the WIFM. We've talked about the WIFM before. What's in it for me? Um, think about the WIFM for your boss and for your company. And try and understand if working remotely provides any benefits for your company, um, apart from obviously keeping you happy. 
will they be able to save money um, without having your direct costs on their books? So the cost of your desk, lighting, electricity, space. It might interest you to know that the average cost of a desk, uh, a person's space in London is £285 per month. So automatically your employers are going to save that by you working remotely. But it could also be things like you might be able to service a different clientele as you'll be in a different time zone. Your productivity might be improved without being dragged into different meetings, which is definitely the case for me. And finally, if your boss isn't open to the idea, but is open to the idea, sorry, but not completely comfortable, suggest a trial run like Diego says. So Try working from home for a couple of weeks before you go abroad. And once you prove you can still have the same amount of productivity um, and the same quality of work, your boss should be much happier to comply. We're going to take a short break right now, but when we get back, we're going to talk about the downsides of becoming a digital nomad. Welcome back to the guide to getting your first job abroad. So before the break, we talked about how to convince your boss to work remotely. Now we're going to delve into the downsides of digital nomadism because, of course, it's fantastic seeing the world and and traveling and working and growing your career while you do it. But there are things that you should bear in mind and forewarned is forearmed, as they say. So I'm just going to go through, I found a really interesting report by Buffer.com called the State of Remote Report, and it talks about the biggest struggles that people have when working remotely. So we'll run through them and talk a little bit more about what they involve. So their number one struggle that people reported as a remote worker was unplugging after work. Number two was loneliness. Number three, collaborating um, and or communication distractions at home, being in a different time zone than teammates, staying motivated, Mm, yeah, (laughs) I can imagine, and taking vacation time. And actually finally finding reliable Wi-Fi. So that's something that would be mitigated if you're doing the uh, digital working retreats. So yeah, it's true. When you're always on the road, getting into routines um, and building habits is hard. Um, Being able to run your business on your phone or your laptop means that you've always got your business with you in your pocket, essentially. And you need to really cultivate the discipline to finish work at an agreed time and have the time to do what you actually came there to do. So exploring your new home. You don't want to end the four years you have abroad by realizing that you spent the whole time um, in the the internet cafe or or in Starbucks trying to, to work remotely. Dating is really tough, I think, because you're never in one place long enough to form a connection and you might want to watch your diet as well. And later on in the series, we talk about how to keep healthy and happy as an expat. Many of the jobs that digital nomads do are also entrepreneurial or self-governing in nature. Um, So you need to make sure you're or you, you either are or you can be an independent self-starting person who you'll, you'll get up and go even when circumstances change. So if you need an office or working hours or other people, so a boss to motivate you, you should think long and hard about making the plunge. And finally, ensure you have a budget and a time scale to try it out. So that way, the worst that can happen is you do some traveling and you come home and you get a quote unquote normal job. Um, But if you have a budget and timescale to try it out, then 
there's not too much that you can lose. We're going to take a short break right now, but when we get back, we'll be conducting the next in our series of inspirational interviews. So this week, we're joined by Damien Piggott, who's built a career in Sydney, Berlin, and now Singapore. He'll be sharing his experience of moving and working abroad at just 23, and what he learned from his time as an expat. So welcome back to the guide to getting your first job abroad. Today we're joined by Damien Pickett, who I met when he was living and working in Berlin, but he's now on his second stint abroad in Singapore. Um, so we're delighted to have him on the podcast to share his story. So just introduce yourself to the audience, Damien. Um, tell us where you're from, where did you go to work abroad and what was your job? Sure. Uh, so originally I'm from Sydney, Australia. Um, and I moved to Berlin, uh, Germany, worked there for about two, two and a half years, uh, and now living in Singapore. Um, my role in Berlin was working mainly in event sponsorship, um, and in Singapore, I'm working uh, as a digital sales manager. Awesome. Um, and what was your route to working abroad? So um, did you transfer with a global company? Did you apply um, from abroad? How do you end up working in, in, first of all, Berlin and then Singapore? Sure. Uh, so I started my career in ITDC company, a uh, global company based in uh, New York, but they also have an office uh, in Sydney, Berlin, uh, Singapore um, as well. So I worked for the Sydney office for two years. Um, after the two years, I asked for transfer to another office um, and they suggested Berlin. Um, I didn't really have anything tying me down to Sydney um, at that time. So I want to work with a different culture um, at a young age uh, with Berlin uh, to Singapore. Um, after about two and a half years, I did want to move somewhere a little bit closer uh, to Australia. So I figured Singapore might be a good uh, opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you worked for a global company and you engineered your, your move abroad. Um, was that a difficult conversation to have? How do you kind of bring it about when you were looking to move abroad within the company? Yeah, I think I actually played it quite smart. Uh, so six months before I left, I was quite upfront with my director and the managing director said, I did want to do something different. And they said, that's totally fine. Um, we do want to keep you on for another six months. We do have a couple more projects we want you to complete uh, before you leave. And I said, that's totally okay. Um, and then after those six months were done, uh, the managing director uh, was okay for me to go to Berlin. Uh, so it all worked out quite well. Yeah, they obviously value you a lot. They've moved you from um, Berlin to, from Sydney to Berlin to Singapore. And they're keen to- Yeah, keep... I'd hope so, yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Um, and why did you choose Berlin as a location? You mentioned that, you know, Singapore was a bit of a halfway between uh, Berlin and Sydney, but, but why Berlin originally? Uh, Berlin originally, I knew the office, uh, the company had an office there. Um, lots of my friends uh, were either going to London or New York, and it seemed like very the in-hip, uh, things to do. Um, I myself want to do something a little bit different. Um, I heard about all the history of Berlin, um, so I've never actually been to Europe before, and I figured, you know, why not? Um, so I was at the time I was 23, um, and I thought it'd be a good opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know you had a good time um, in Berlin and in Singapore, but what were the challenges that you faced? Were there any nasty surprises, anything that you wish you'd known? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so although most people in Berlin speak English, uh, it's very hard to socialize with locals or other expats or even uh, work with government agencies or service staff um, if you don't learn German. Um, so it is quite important that you at least have conversational German um, as well just to speak with people. 
Um, so since if you don't learn the language, you know, a German to German would speak naturally German and you'd feel kind of out of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and Singapore, was that um, easier? I think it was easier to move. So Singapore probably has more of a similar culture as the UK. Um, and then Germany is a very different culture altogether. So I think moving from uh, Berlin to Singapore, I was a bit of a culture shock um, as well, but Singapore is probably something I'm more used to uh, as being an Australian. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and what did, um, or what do you enjoy, because you're still there, about working abroad? Um, I do enjoy meeting the people. Um, so in the Berlin office, we had a group of 12 uh, in the team I worked in uh, from 10 different nationalities. Um, so, so it is quite interesting to meet people from different walks of life, uh, different cultures. Um, the, the other part of this naturally is the travel. Uh, in Berlin, um, I was able to travel every two weeks, two or three weeks uh, to a different country or a different city. Um, it obviously was quite cheap as well. So you have flights with Ryanair or EasyJet um, and then the hostel is there. So, you know, a weekend trip, let's say London could be under a hundred euros. Um, awesome. well. so, yeah, the travel opportunities there naturally in Southeast Asia here. No trips to Bali, um, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, all quite cheap as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So a little bit different to Sydney. Um, and finally, yeah, exactly. um, as someone that's lived and worked abroad uh, for quite a few years now, have you got any tips for people looking to get their first job abroad? Yeah, um, I think if you can, try and work for a company with an international presence um, mm-hmm. as well that would give you, give you the opportunity to move abroad, if that's something of interest. Um, as well. If you do go down the line, you still do like the country uh, you're living and working in. Obviously, there's no, uh, there's no uh, fallback from there. But if you can, I would work for an international company. Make your intentions clear. Um, I think don't just drop the ball on them to say, I want to move uh, you know, next week. Um, naturally, work with your line manager or your managing director um, as well about your intentions. And I think they'll be more than happy to give you those opportunities. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, So yeah, thank you so much for sharing your invaluable experience with us, Damien. And I hope you'll come back and join us on a future episode. No worries. Thank you, Sam. So before we go, we'll cover the top three takeaways from this week's jam-packed episode. Number one, Being a digital nomad doesn't have to be a lone pursuit. So over the last few years, a whole host of online platforms, real-life meetups and co-working spaces have been set up to support it. Websites such as Nomadlist can help you identify the nearest co-working spaces to you. Number two, being an independent person who can motivate themselves is essential to digital nomadism. So if you're easily distracted or tend to procrastinate, you might want to think again. And number three is being a digital nomad isn't just the realm of freelancers. If you have a job, you too could become location independent. Just check out sites such as Remote Year and Unsettled for inspiration. That's everything from this week's episode. Thanks for listening and I hope you found it useful. Please rate us and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you've been listening and get in touch with your questions and comments. Yourfirstjobabroad at gmail.com is our email. Yourfirstjobabroad at gmail.com. Next time, we're covering the topic of staying safe. So we're going to look at scams, taboos and reveal both the safest and most dangerous cities globally. I'm also going to cover our top 10 ways to stay safe when living and working abroad and look at the importance of respecting culture and customs. Thank you.